Morning, church. Open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12, please. Be in the 12th chapter of the book of Hebrews. And uh, if you're visiting Christ Church this morning, my name is Mark, and we're glad that you're with us. We're completing a series, as Samantha mentioned at the beginning of the hour together, we're completing this series through uh, the study of who God is, or the characteristics of God. But I want to say what we said five weeks ago. It's really important for us to understand that if we took all of our waking hours, and let's say we took 18 hours a day, and we gathered together in this place, we could spend 10 years studying scripture and identifying characteristics of God and not even come close. We could never exhaust it. We could never fully understand it. So a study like this, even a small sampling of who God is, is really meant to do some things for us. It's to help us know with certainty, as much as we can, who God is, and it's also to identify who we are in light of it. And those two things are really important. Every Bible study should reveal who God is and who we are and what kind of world we're living in. So we've been studying so far a few things about God. We began by talking about God is knowable. He hasn't told us everything about himself. In fact, he tells us that we will never totally understand him, that he cannot be defined. But he also said, I want to show you some things about myself that you can hold on to, things that are useful to you, and, and things that will help us love him more. So in that study of God being knowable, we also talked about God being holy and loving and serving us. And last week, we talked about God being supreme. In fact, the world is begging us to worship the things of the world because it then takes from us and they use us. And yet we don't have a God who uses us. We have a God who makes us useful. And there's a completely different uh, feeling to that. So why when you can have the best of a beautiful God would you take half of that and accept a temporary thing of the world? These are things we're thinking about as we ponder who God is and what that makes of us. Today we're going to talk about the sovereignty of God. And the, the word sovereignty is a difficult word. I don't think we use it anywhere in American culture today except in the church. And I think it's a misunderstood word. I don't plan to, to delve into all the aspects of sovereignty today. Time won't allow it. In fact, we're going to be touching on it in our next series and then our series in the fall. So we're going to be talking about sovereignty a lot over the next three or four months. And I think it's better to deal with it in small dosages than to try to overwhelm people in 28 minutes. But we're going to talk about sovereignty. And I want to give you a technical definition of sovereignty. Uh, this comes from the Easton Bible Dictionary. Sovereignty is God's absolute right to do all things according to his own good pleasure. His absolute right to do whatever he wants. Now, outside of this room, and even in in this room to a degree, but outside of this room, that would not be agreed upon. That God has no right to impose himself upon any of us, but I tend to think he does. As creator of all of this, he has the right to do whatever he wants. We are his, and this world is his, and none of it would be in existence without him. Do you agree? So sovereignty is not up to debate. Sovereignty is what it is. God's right to do whatever God wants to do. So I believe, because I believe in the sovereignty of God and his right, I believe God can tell me what's right and wrong, and he's correct. I believe God can tell me not to do something, and he's correct, and to do something, and he's correct. I believe that God can end this world any way he wants to, and it will be right, because he is sovereign. And because that's not a term, I don't think any of you, I don't know any of you grew up walking into your parents' bedroom and going, oh, sovereign father and mother. 
But we knew it was true, didn't we? Uh, I, I think about it all the time. You know, I knew that Dale Christian got what Dale Christian wanted unless Marilyn Christian disagreed. So I really knew who was sovereign in our home, and I knew who pretended to be. Now, as a kid growing up, I saw the sovereignty of my parents. I'll confess this before God. I've been grounded more in my life for not eating peas than any other issue I've presented to my parents. I don't like them. I don't want to like them. And you can convince me how wonderful they are fresh out of the garden. You're lying. I'm not going to like them. I don't want to eat peas. And I used to get sent to my room because my mom would put this ladle. If my dad was serving food, I hated it because he put what he liked. And there was this pile of those nasty things on my plate. And they would say, you're going to eat those. And I I tried not to be a disrespectful, disobedient child. I really didn't. But there was something inside of me that said, I shouldn't have to eat that. And so my parents say, if you don't finish those peas, you're going to your room. Nothing else to eat the rest of the night. You can't come out. See ya. And I would go to my room, and oh, my mom, she was brilliant, my dad would go to work, and I'd wake up, and what'd they serve me for breakfast? I can go four or five days, I'll tell you, I can. I'm not eating peas, and I would get grounded for this. And one time, I was a little bit older, and I didn't do this very often, because I've told you a lot about my dad. I love my dad, but my dad, there were rules, and you paid if you broke the rules, and that's the way it should have been. So to my dad one day, he said, you're going to eat those peas, and I said, no, I'm not. And he gave me that look like, Really? And I said, Dad, why don't you eat spaghetti? And his face changed. And I said, because I've noticed whenever you're at work, when my dad worked evenings, when you work evenings, we have spaghetti. But we never have spaghetti when you're home. And I looked across the room to catch my mom smile. <laughs> and what I found out was, when my dad was in the military, they might have eaten spaghetti four or five nights a week. So he always equated it to being in Anchorage, Alaska in the military for three years away from his family, and he hated spaghetti. So mom never served it when he was home. Now, I did go to my room that night because I wouldn't eat my peas, but it never, ever happened again. My dad had compromised from that moment on, and he told my mom, I will eat vegetables. So my mom would make me vegetables I liked. And so it was a great day. In fact, (laughs) let's call it a win. But it was about sovereignty. Because the truth is, I should have eaten the peas my mom and dad told me to eat. I should have. Because my dad worked for those. And to disrespect him in that way may have not been the most mature response. But being 8, 9, 12 years old, I think I understand it a little bit. Sovereignty. We know when we see it. We know when we're driving down a road and a police officer tells us to pull over. Sovereignty is in play. They have been given the authority to make us pull over and accept that ticket. Because that's what sovereignty looks like. Today I want to talk to you about sovereignty and how it looks in our lives in relationship to the wisdom of God. And the way we're going to do that is we're going to talk about how do we view the sovereignty of God when we're suffering. When things aren't going the way we want it to. When we're not getting what we want. When it seems like God's not helping us out of our difficulty. Do we then believe in the sovereignty of God? Because the sovereignty of God is not conditional. It's not occasional. It either is or it isn't. I'm going to use a text this morning from Hebrews chapter 12 that is, I would not have thought of it on my own if I had not been doing some study and I came across a sermon as well as an article and I thought it really works. So to make it a little bit easier on our introduction to sovereignty, we're going to go to Hebrews 12. Let me read the first 13 verses. 
Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Now, I want to just, I'm going to stop here and make a couple of comments, then we'll proceed. That first verse tells you, you didn't choose the race, but you're in it. You got that? That there are things that happen in life that come to you, and we're going to have to get rid of the unnecessary things to focus on the necessary. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy, interesting word, set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and you have forgotten the words of encouragement that addresses you as sons. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes anyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons, and for what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined, and everybody undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our own good that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. It's really a kind of a complex section of the letter to the Hebrew Christians. But what I want to draw from it are a couple of things that we need to remember. Several times in the text, we're told to endure hardship. And the the terminology used by the author of Hebrews here, to endure hardship, means to stand up under tremendous pressure. There, There is something in the biological construct of God's creation that nothing grows without stress. That nothing grows and advances without pressure and a stretching of its current condition into its future desired condition. And if that is biologically true, and it is, the, the, the plant has to break through the seed. It has to have enough nutrients. It has to have a combination of heat and moisture. It has to have all of these things. If that is true biologically, why are any of us shocked that it's also true spiritually? If you believe that suffering is a curse, you've not understood the teaching of the Bible. Suffering is the necessary climate control that causes you to grow beyond what you currently are. We say today, well, stress is bad. No, stress is natural. Stress in its right proportion helps us as better students. Knowing an exam is coming up or a deadline for a paper is due causes me to be a better student in discipline and forcing myself to do those things I don't want to do to accomplish the things I say I want to accomplish. You see, it's, I was thinking about this a couple weeks ago. It's easy to believe that God is sovereign, that God will get what God wants over an eventual hell It's hard to believe that God's sovereign when you're going through a current hell. We can believe that one day God will make it all okay, but we have a problem in the middle of suffering today believing that God's even there. I'm going to go really deep and quote one of the great philosophers of our day, the Oak Ridge Boys, (laughs) and it's not Elvira, so relax. 
One of my favorite songs that I remember driving in my dad's pickup truck with him as we drove around town, and he'd have WMAQ out of Chicago, which was a country station, and an Oak Ridge Boys song came on, and I remember it as a kid, like in maybe 19, I don't know, 76 or 77. The song came out, and here are the words. And just, I know it's cheesy, but hang with me a minute. It says, it takes a little rain to make love grow. It's the heartache and the pain that makes the real heart show. And then this is the line that I always remember from the song. Where the sun always shines, there's a desert below. But it takes a little rain to make things grow. Biblically, I can show you. God never said you won't suffer. He just told you to endure it, to fight through it, to learn from it. But we live in a culture that says, if we suffer, there is no God. And I'm, I'm going to tell you this, and this is another deep thought I had that I sent to a couple of, of our friends. I'm in a group of guys that on, during the week, if we ever come across something we think is significant, and I can't wait till Sunday to share it with somebody, I'll throw it to these guys during the week. And I, I found something. It's not deep. You're going to realize I'm not a very smart person, but I think. And what I sent to them was, I said, have you noticed that the promise of a rainbow only comes after the storm? Do you know the rainbow doesn't show up five minutes before the storm to remind you you're going to be Okay. The rainbow comes after the storm to remind you he was there. And for many of us, we're praying that God would not let us suffer. But the prayer should be that God teaches us how to suffer well. Because it is going to happen. And those who choose not to suffer don't live very long. Because if you've never suffered, you're not really alive. Because we're living in a broken world. And evil happens all the time. And the right thing is hardly ever given applause. You're going to suffer. It's how you choose to do it. And so I want to show you just a couple of things that I draw from this text that were encouraging to me, and hopefully they're encouraging to you. Because when I tell you you're going to suffer, you're like, boo. But I say, but you can suffer well. You're like, oh, I hope. And some of you are going, but I'm not good at this. No, I hope I never get good at suffering. But I know a God who can get me through suffering. Because if you ever get good at suffering, then it's not suffering. So biologically and spiritually, we all grow under stress. Let's look at the first one. God has the sovereign wisdom of a coach. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11, it says, It produces suffering, and the discipline of God, if we endure it, produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. And the word trained there, used in the Greek, is the same word that we get our word gymnasium. Training. When I played basketball... My coaches would analyze my game and realize there are certain things I couldn't do. When I played baseball, my coaches would point out to me, it wasn't ever encouraging, but they would say to me, you do this all the time. I had a hitch in my swing. I would drop my hands from my shoulders to my hips and come back up, and the faster the pitcher was, the less I could make contact, and my coach always said, get rid of the hitch in your swing. I wish he'd have told me how, but he told me what to do. Basketball coaches always said, you can't go to your left. My left hand is cosmetic only. (laughs) I'm not going to lie to you. Brianna, you couldn't coach me. I have no left. If you took off my right arm, I'd starve to death. I can't do very many things. My my coaches would pick that up and say, dribble, left-handed. Oh, nice. I'd be doing it if I could. And they'd say, put your right hand in the waistband of your shorts and dribble through this drill left-handed. And they would drill me. 
They would make me use my left. They'd make me do left-handed layups, make me do left-handed free throws. Every, it didn't work, but they tried. They were training me. Here's what I can tell you about God in suffering. The wisdom of God, the sovereignty of God in his wisdom is this. God is going to ask you to do things you don't want to do to get you where you say you want to go. I want to run a marathon. I don't like to run. Do we have a problem? Yeah, I say I want to one day run a marathon. I don't think in my entire life I've run 26 miles accumulatively. And yet I want to run a marathon one day. I better like to run or make myself run. And spiritually, if your hind end spends all day on the couch, don't expect to be able to run the race of faith. A trainer says, you're not doing this, you need to do it. Some of you have personal trainers. You tell me about them. You have a trainer who looks at you and says, okay, if you want to lose weight, we're going to reduce your diet. You mean I can't have anything I want? You're not going to be able to sleep as much because you're going to get up early and you're going to come to the gym and you're going to lift weights and you're going to run and you're going to do endurance things and I'm going to take you from where you are to where you say you want to be and if you let me train you, I can get you through this process because where the sun always shines, there's a desert below. But if you let me train you, if you let me change you, Mark, if you learn to use your left hand, your right hand is going to get better and you're going to be a better athlete. Every coach in this room knows that. Every athlete in this room knows that. Your, your music teachers, you name anyone who's ever trained you, your school teachers. I hated when I had to stay in during recess to work on handwriting. Ugh. And I laugh when I get my Braden's report card. A-A-A-A-A-B. Can you guess what the B's in? Genetics. <laughs> he got my handwriting. And he came home one day, and I, he got mad because I laughed at him. He said, I didn't get to go to recess because my handwriting was sloppy again. And I went, son, yes. <laughs> give dad a hug. I'm so sorry. So he was really proud when he came home and said, dad, look at my grade in handwriting, year end. His teacher showed mercy, and he got an A. But he had to work on it. And she rewarded his what? She didn't give him an A for handwriting, church. I've seen it. She gave him an A for working on it working harder on it, making improvement. Don't you love the fact that our God can take moments of suffering and make us better because of it? When we define suffering as we're becoming worse, God says, no, 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 trust me, I'm going to make you better. I'm going to make you go to your left if you'll take the analogy one step further. And you're going to be better for it, Mark. That's what I'm going to do with you. You see, hardship that comes into life has a regiment to it. It has a routine. The Bible promises that the suffering we're going through today, if we trust that God is wise, that he is taking us through a pattern where every day he's making us better and better and stronger and stronger so we can stand up longer and longer under pressure. Biologically and spiritually, your muscles atrophy if they're not put to work. And spiritually, your faith is a muscle. And if you're not stretching it and advancing it and making it stand up under pressure, it gets flabby and fat and useless. It's, it's right there. You see, Timothy Keller has this great line about suffering. He says, when it doesn't seem like there's an order to your life, it doesn't mean there's no order to your life. It's just not your order. 
I think we know that to be true, isn't it? God, why isn't my job going perfectly? Because God says, I don't need your job to go perfect. I need to train you. I need to put you in circumstances that are difficult to watch you endure so you become stronger and more steadfast. But I want to be crystal clear on this one point. And this is a disagreement I have today in, in some areas of theology. And it's, it's, it's my opinion, but I think I can show you biblically. I wouldn't suggest it if there wasn't a biblical purpose to it. I want to be clear. I'm not saying that God brings every difficulty into our life. I don't believe in a sovereignty that blames God or gives God credit for everything. I don't find that biblically. So I don't believe that God brings every difficulty to us. I'm saying, however, he can make every difficulty useful. Some of the difficulties and suffering we have in our life, we brought on ourselves in our sin. And God does not permit or allow sin. So there are some things that we suffer through that we've earned, yet I still believe God's there. And there are some suffering and difficulties that God brings on us, and I believe he's there too. I absolutely believe in the sovereignty of God within my free will. So I believe God's a trainer. And I believe that he is training us to be stronger and to endure longer. And he's putting us in situations that makes us run when we don't want to run or get off the couch when all we want to do is sit. Second thing that I see in this text is that God has the sovereign wisdom of a father. You see, there's a loving purpose to our suffering. Look at verse 10 with me. Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. Whether you're using a, an app on your phone or iPad or whether you're using a physical Bible, I want to encourage you, if you're taking notes, that there's two principles in verse 10 that we need to remember when we suffer. That if God is allowing us to suffer, it's for our own good so that we become holy. And when you suffer, you have to remember what we've been studying now for six total weeks. Do we believe in a loving, holy God? Do we believe in a God who's serving us, a God who's pursuing us, a God who is supreme? Because if we do, then we can believe that in the midst of our suffering, it is good for us and it can produce holiness. If we believe that God's goal in life is to make us comfortable and happy, then any bit of suffering is, where's God gone? If God really loved me, he wouldn't let me... I heard this one time and I don't remember who said it. But if... If God's purpose, if you think God's purpose is to make you happy, entertained, and comfortable, then God owes Jesus an apology, which tells me that I have a false conception of God if comfort and happiness are the indicators of whether or not he is who he is. So what's the role of a parent? He uses the image of a father. What's my role as a dad or Heather's role as a mom or apply it to your own home? See, a parent looks at their child and realizes they're dependent, vulnerable, and naive. And I say all of those things are endearing. They're dependent on us, they're, they're naive to the things of the world, and they're vulnerable. Biologists say that of all the animals, and pardon the terminology of us as animals, but of all the created creatures, there is no infant animal that is as helpless as the human animal. I think that's, that's fascinating to me. If you look at all the other animal creations that God put together, or all the creatures, parenting is not necessary after just a little bit of time. Parenting is necessary in the human for the rest of our lives. Can I have an amen? 
It just is. I still rely on my mom and dad for wisdom. I still rely on, how do you do this? How did you handle this with us? But when we look at this, we think about it, that our role is, I, I have a wonderful little boy named Braden. And he's nine years old. And Heather and I love him. He is so different than me. Sometimes I'm fascinated by him. And sometimes he drives me up the wall. And Heather will say he drives me up the wall when he's like me. But when he's different, he's like her. I look at him and I go, wow, that kid's going to do something. He may not live long, but he's going to do something. It's going to be amazing. <laughs> Braden has got the biggest heart of any child I've ever met. He's just, he just got a big heart. And I'm gonna, not going to lie to you. I fear for junior high. Because I remember the reality that hit me in junior high. Kids are mean. Cliques form. These kids he grew up with in elementary school that... See, Braden has this weird ability. He's not here today, so I asked him if I could talk about this. I get permission. He, he can't imagine there's anybody who wouldn't want to be his friend. Junior high is going to kill him. Because kids are mean. And these kids who grew up in elementary school, at best Truman schools, going together, and Harry Truman going together, they're going to get to junior high, and they're all going to go their different way. And my boy with a big heart is going to be exposed to the fact that life's not always fun. So what's my role as a parent? It's to discipline him. That doesn't mean send him to his room. You guys get what discipline means, right? I love what one scholar said. Discipline is a controlled amount of discomfort. I like that. That makes me feel better about me. A controlled amount of discomfort. So I need to share with Braden and protect his heart. And I need to nurture him. I don't need to tell him that the world's hard. He'll figure that out on his own. But I need to know him. his mom and dad love him and, and that he can be a better person. And he needs to be a good friend. I need to do all those things. That's what parenting is. It's allowing these vulnerable creatures that God's blessed us with to raise them up so they can endure when they get knocked down. Are you with me? Aren't we grateful that's our God? who he's with us when everybody else isn't. That he's telling us no to our benefit. That he's calling us and saying, I want you to live well. But I remember getting caught in a lie by my dad and the penalty that I faced at home for lying. I had to go to everybody in our house and tell them I was a liar. It was horrible. But what did it do for me? It taught me one of two truths. Don't get caught lying or don't lie. And I was disciplined. And I remember for about three months after that, everything I told my mom or dad, they asked me the question, are you telling me the truth? And that hurt. Because the consequences of my actions produced a fruit I didn't want to eat. And my parents made me eat it. And I think as, as flawed as my parents were as human beings, they were great parents because they loved me enough. Remember, God lets us go through things like this so that it, because it's good for us, And because it'll produce holiness. Verse 5, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Remember who he is. And remember when God says no, even to your prayer of uncle, God let up. And God says no. It's because it's good for you. And he loves you that he will stop it when it's done its work. He will stop the drill when you've learned the ability. It's the promise of a trainer and a father. You see, because sometimes God allows hardship in our life that's the result of our character flaws. Sometimes God says simply, no, that's the fruit you need to eat, Mark. You lied and you got caught, now live with it. And the older I get, the bitter it becomes to realize that I I didn't do or become what I wanted to be as a man and I have to eat that fruit. I hate it. 
because I did it to myself. But sometimes God allows us to suffer to reveal our character flaws. So did you catch that? Sometimes it's a result of our flaws and sometimes it's to reveal them. For instance, I just came up with a couple of quick examples. He might finally let your addiction cost you your job. Your hidden sins may come out and cost you your place because that's the fruit of your choice. And he loves you enough to let you suffer the penalty of it because he'll never abandon you. He finally might let your bitterness get you into depression. Now, not all depression is caused by that, but a lot is a lack of forgiveness and bitterness causes people to go into depression. Maybe God allows that. Or maybe he finally lets your overwork land you in the hospital. And he lets you suffer through the result. But sometimes it just reveals it. I believe that one of the reasons God persuaded Heather to finally marry me is so I could realize how selfish I am. Because it wasn't until I got married. I mean, compared to my brothers, I was pretty giving. But I married that girl, like the giver of the world. I married her and I realized how truly selfish I am. And sometimes God makes Heather suffer so I can learn a lesson about me. And God's good. Even when I don't like it, it's never too much. God's good. John Newton says, everything is necessary that God permits and nothing can be necessary that he withholds. Did you hear that? Everything is necessary God allows you to go through, but nothing is necessary if God doesn't let you have it. That's the sovereignty of God played out. The author of Hebrews says, endure hardship as discipline. Be trained by it. Be parented by it. Learn to live within it. Realize that God is wise, compassionate, and God is for you. Realize in his wisdom that he is running you through a circuit of training so he can make you better to endure and to go. I live in a neighborhood where people jog. In fact, I see a couple people in here today who run through my neighborhood. One of them I almost ran over recently uh, in the car. And uh, I see them running. And the first time I saw them running, man, you, I almost called 911. A couple of them like, go home. Faces were beat red. They thought they were moving. They hadn't moved in half an hour. I was like, wow. Now I see them busting through the neighborhood. They're not even sweating. They run by and talk to me. I'm like, how can you run and talk? What's happened is by running through their circuit, they're developing endurance and strength to stand up when once that stress on them wore them out, now they keep adding to the stress to get where they want to go. It's biblical. In the book of Job, Job lost everything. He was being tempted and suffering. Two, of his, two or three of his friends came to him and told him it's because he was a loser and he was a liar and if he just confessed his sins, God would stop his suffering. And Job knew that wasn't true. And Job became dis- discouraged and he called out against God and a younger friend came in and said to him, you're, you're, you're applying your suffering to God unfairly. And then God sat Job down. And if I counted correctly, there are 27 questions that God asked Job. And Job answered none of them. Like one great question, Job, Job, where were you when I packed the snow into the skies to fall on their appointed times? Job's like, nowhere. God said, when you can answer my questions, I'll answer your question. And at the conclusion of Job, Job breaks into praise and worship, and he admits that the suffering of God displays the goodness of God, not the cruelty of God, because he never left me. But when Job lost his children, his farm, his finances, and everything, Job said, The Lord gave, 
That's the first piece. And the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. That's the sovereignty of God. That's when we get it. In verse 5, in the Hebrew text, and you have forgotten the words of encouragement that addresses you as sons. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says to the early church, no temptation has seized you except that which is common to man, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. And when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out up so that you can stand up under it, endure. God says, I am not trying to crush you. I am stressing you so you'll grow, so you'll become what you should become instead of staying compacted in the seed and never producing fruit. The sovereignty of God, his power to do what he sees fit is always to our benefit. Romans chapter 8, 28, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. How do we do this? I don't think any of us doubt we can or we should, but how do we do it? The reason I read that entire passage from Hebrews chapter 12 is because we're given the key at the beginning. To let off those things that are keeping us from growing, consider Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith. Samantha said it earlier this hour, Jesus was in a garden and God said, I'm going to make you suffer for all the sins of every person at Christ Church of Orinogo on this date, June 1st, 2014. And Jesus said to him, Father, is there any other way? And God said what? No. I am going to let you suffer so that I can free each and every one of these people. And Jesus' response was, as your will decrees. In other words, yes, sir. And then, when crucified, in one of the most torturous and painful, uh, all of your Bible pictures show a little trickle of blood. The man died in three hours when most people would die in 18 hours on a cross. He was brutalized before he was ever put on a cross. And on that cross, that man, on the moment before he died, cried out to his God, into your hands I commit my spirit. That's what the sovereignty of God looks like. When in any circumstance we're going through, we can say these words, into your hands, I commit myself. Some of us today, it's about renewing that commitment. And for some of us today, it's making that commitment for the very first time. That I have a God who can cross my will and he is still sovereign and in control. If you want to know what that means and is, these tables with lamps, as we sing, we'll meet you there to answer your questions, to schedule an appointment, to encourage you that our God reigns. He is sovereign. And even when things don't go our way, our God is bigger and better than any circumstance we'll ever face. Church, do we believe that here this morning? God can be trusted. He is the God we worship. Let's stand together.